Welcome to the Roxback Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins. I'm here as ever with my colleague Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. Hey, Mark. This week's episode is rather 70s themed. We'll be talking about Elton John and about Stevie Wonder, and we'll be talking about them and many other things with the American author and journalist Bob Spitz. Welcome. Hello there. Glad Hi, to be here. Hi, Bob. <laughs> great, great to have you. Welcome to London. I met you in London once before. And Absolutely. You are right here, here, as a matter of fact. Yeah. Right here. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You're here researching a new book. We're going to be talking about some old books. We're going to be talking about your career, really, from from the get-go. So it's a very short show, in other words. <laughs> it's a very short right. yeah. okay. You have to do all that in about <laughs> ten minutes. Um, right. I shouldn't really need to introduce Bob Spitz to regular listeners. Oh, yes, you need to do <laughs> Really. <laughs> I could just ask you to introduce yourself. Bob has written... A number of huge and definitive books on major artists. Dylan the Beatles doesn't get more major than that. But also one of the first big books on the Woodstock Festival, Barefoot and Babylon. And you've more recently written biographies of the American cookery writer Julia Child. And most recently about (laughs) Ronald Reagan. We'll get around to Reagan later. I bet we will. Yeah. In this day and age, I think we even feel quite sort of benevolent towards Ronald Reagan. It's all relevant. Don't go there yet. But welcome. It's it's great to have you here. Uh, We're going to talk to you about your writing, but also about your involvement with the careers of artists like well mainly Bruce Springsteen yep. the guy isn't he sure. but tell me where you came into music I mean Wes Farrell is a name I have no wow down you really uh, you did your just, homework didn't you where did you I, walk into rock and roll Bob you know I was headed to medical school actually oh my gosh walk <laughs> in the road and, and two weeks before I was set to go my parents talked me out of it <laughs> my dad's a doctor he sat me down and said you were I think you're making a wrong decision wow uh, this I, is exactly this is a Absolutely. I was stunned because I had worked so hard to get into medical school. And so he said, I think you ought to get on a bus. I lived in Pennsylvania in the States and go to New York and look around and spend some time there. Visit your uncle. I had an uncle who lived there and maybe take a year off. This is really something. (laughs) So he knew somebody who could get me a job and they got me a job with Wes Farrell. (laughs) Now, you know, Wes Farrell was not only, at the time he was producing The Partridge Family, I have to admit that. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, Wes had written like Hang On Sleepy Sleepy. and and, uh, dozens of other songs. He was the Mickey most of... New York, but without Mickey's ear. <laughs> so, so I mean, far as Mickey had an ear. Yeah. So far as Mickey, well, Mickey did. Mickey yeah, okay. could pick hits. But uh, Wes could pick hits, but he picked hits for like, you know, Tony Orlando and Dawn. Right. I mean. But anyway, it got me in the door. And, and one night, about four months later, I was sitting in the office. The office was closed. It was about 8.30 at night, and there was a knock on the door. And I went and I got the two guys who were writing music for the show down the hall, Mike Appel and Jimmy Creticus. And I said, there's somebody knocking at the door. How'd they get up here? We let the person in, and the kid had a guitar, and he wanted his music heard. And we said, you know, come back at a different time. The office is closed, and he goes, I'm just here. And he had a little tweety girlfriend with him. And they (laughs) sat. We said, okay, sit down on the couch, and we'll listen. And, you know, we were rolling our eyes because we knew what was going to (laughs) happen. But we didn't know what was going to happen because it was Bruce Springsteen. And he played a song called No Need, which... 
in my wisdom, I recorded. I got a tape recorder out and just recorded it. And halfway through the song, Mike and Jimmy and I were cutting glances at each other going, holy shit. I mean, we said, do you have any other songs? And he pulled out this notebook and he said, I've got hundreds of them. (laughs) (laughs) And we couldn't believe it. He played half a dozen songs. We made an appointment to see him the next day in the middle of the afternoon. But at 10 o'clock the next morning, we went in and we quit our jobs. Now, Mike and Jimmy, had they were 10 years older than me. They had, Mike had a wife and kids. They needed that money. And we didn't even bat an eye. Mm. We knew. And within three days, we had a deal for him at Columbia Records with John Hammond. That's amazing. Yeah, it was, a, it was one of the most fantastic weeks of my life. <laughs> so it's like Danny Goldberg's phrase, bumping into geniuses. Right, So right. you were part of his management team, effectively. Yes. Yes, Mike and Jimmy and I formed a company called, of all things, Laurel Canyon Music. We crib your... Because your, your, it's about as far away from Laurel Canyon, really, in Mike, sensibility. Mike said know? it had a great feel yeah. to it. So, okay, yeah. whatever. Laurel Canyon comes to Asbury Park. Exactly <laughs> right. We formed this company. We signed Bruce, as he has written, on the hood of a car. He had no lawyer. You know, we just gave him a contract. I regret that now. (laughs) (laughs) And we were in business, and we went to see John Hammond at the end of that week, and it was the same thing. Bruce pulled out a guitar. It's a famous story. Mike said to John Hammond on the phone, hey, listen, we hear you have ears. If you have ears, then you'll know what we're doing with this guy. And Hammond said, how impertinent, you creep. He said, said, come into my office right away. And we went in with Bruce, and we were already on the outs with John Hammond. I mean, John Hammond, who discovered, you know, Dylan and and Aretha and and Simon and Garfield. Billy Holiday, Betsy Smith. Yeah, possibly. Um, (laughs) But the same thing happened with John that happened with, uh, with us that night. Bruce played a couple songs, and Hammond ran down the hall and got Clive davis and said we're signing this guy and that was it you know it was it was fantastic it was that easy fantastic um of course the relationship certainly with mike apple went sour with yeah i left after four years because i discovered that the money that we were putting aside for bruce and the band was not there anymore (laughs) and Ah. i went and i told bruce and he 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 couldn't be bothered he was just on the cover of time and newsweek Mm -hmm. and things were happening he didn't want to hear and i said well i'm leaving and i quit and i just left and two years later i was sitting in my my flat and the doorman rang up and said there's a mr bruce here and i said (laughs) i said mr bruce he goes yes and he's not in very good condition Bruce came up and he was a wreck because he realized his money was gone. Mike was keeping him from recording. That's right. And he needed help. And so I pitched in and Bruce and I filed suit against Mike. I won and Bruce didn't. Beware of managers called Mike, right? Mike Jeffrey. So oh, so Mike Jeffries. Believe me, I know I knew Mike Jeffries too. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. So you you ended up on the side of the angels of that particular. Oh speech. yeah, I mean you know he, Bruce is my daughter's godfather. Ah. I mean, you know, so we've known each other for forty five years. Right. Yeah. Right. No, I you know I I couldn't be part of that, and and uh, the truth of the matter is 
Bruce is made up with Mike. We're all buddies again. So, uh, he gave Mike's kids the jacket that he wore on the cover of Born to Run, mm-hmm. the jean jacket. We're all we're all friends again. It doesn't surprise me because Springsteen, you would think, is someone who uh, just has no interest in harboring resentment. I mean, no, he, he did at the time, but you know, he grew yeah. out of it and. He's got more important things. Well, he's got more important things. <laughs> I mean, it was tough not being able to record for, was it two years? Yeah, it was and, two years. Uh, yeah. And right at the beginning of the peak of his career, to be sort of stopped in your tracks like that must yeah. be incredibly hard. It was right after Born to Run. That's right. Mm. And, and he would open up his shows, you know, talking about it mm. uh, in those days. He, right. He, he was a wreck. He was, you know, this was a guy who was at his creative peak and he, he couldn't get it down on tape. So, was yeah. it analogous in any way to, you know, the scales falling from Dylan's eyes regarding Albert Grossman? You know, I, I, I don't know. I think that Dylan and... Dylan and Grossman always had a love-hate relationship, mm-hmm. and 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 yeah. um, Albert was a a really tough guy. I oh mean, yeah, he was a, from Chicago. He was from Chicago, but he was a take no prisoners kind of guy. Not in the Peter Grant mold, but he was an intellect who could destroy you with words and and or Dil- silence or silence and you know Dylan could do the same thing Dylan yes. was a master at it but even Dylan was humbled by by Albert and yeah. I think Albert knew how to keep a leash on Bob yeah but when did you first write and um, <laughs> did you did you start writing after you walked away from from Elton John Yes. Tell us about Elton John, since well, we will you know, be talking about Elton <laughs> yeah. John. Let's talk about Elton Well, that. the most interesting thing was, you know, I had quit Bruce, and I, I had no no job, and I had just gotten married, and uh, didn't know what I was going to do. And I got a call from a woman who had been Wes Farrell's PA. Uh-huh. And she said, I'm in a much better place now, and the guy I am with is very interested in speaking to you, and he's a rock artist. And I went, oh, you know, this is I'm going to wind up with Barry Manilow. <laughs> <laughs> well, we talk about him in a second. <laughs> <laughs> and and she said, no, she said, come over to the office. And I went over to the office, and sure enough, she was working for Elton John. And they asked me to take over the North American operation. He was being handled by Dick James at that time. That's yeah. right. That's a person we yeah. don't want to, you know, <laughs> get too much. Uh, we won't go down that road. Yeah, we won't go no. down the Mike Jeffrey road. And we won't go <laughs> right, down exactly James right. Road. But they asked me to handle management and publishing and recording chores for Elton in North America, and this was during Yellow Brick Road. It was right at the top. Right. Of it. Yellow Brick Road, Caribou, and Rock of the Westies. And I was there for two years, and it was pretty blissful. ask you a sort of direct question do you think this new Elton film to the extent you know anything about it is going to clearly they think it's going to somehow do as well as Bohemian Rhapsody the Queen movie or something like that it's they better keep their fingers crossed <laughs> I mean all of these movies are pretty cheesy you know that's that's the, yeah. the yeah. long and short of it yeah I actually will go on record saying that I like Bohemian Rhapsody I thought the movie wasn't well bad. I loved the guy I thought yeah he was, he was I thought Rami Malek was yeah. terrific and I was prepared to loathe every minute of it but I think someone trying to play Elton is going to be very tough because they've got to go into caricature. Mm. 
and it'll. I think it'll come off like a cartoon. I hope mm-hmm. not, but mm-hmm. I think it will. Also, I know they're going to rake him over the coals about about drugs, and you know, it was a short period of his life. Yeah. So. We'll see. Yeah, this is Rocket Man, which is, I think, coming out in 10 days or yeah, so. Yeah, 10 days, um, yeah. And, yeah, it's a story. I mean, well, I've seen his pictures of them kind of like outside some simulacrum of the Troubadour Club. Yeah. The, the, the legendary 1970 gig that made Elton really right. in the story. I mean, he's an unlikely... <laughs> Superstar, really. Oh, I mean, without a doubt. What do you think of Freddie Mercury? He was just immensely flamboyant and charismatic. I mean, Elton was Reg from Pinner, wasn't he? Mark? Well, he was who kind of invented a sort of flamboyance himself. That came quite late. I mean, his his early stuff. He was obsessed with the band and people like that. Right. He was producing a sort of Americana. Absolutely. Um, yeah. That's yeah. where his heart lay. But yeah, yeah, very, and he's massively Leon Russell fan. I mean, I mean there's a song called Leave On on Tumbleweed Connection. Yeah. Right, but he was right. a huge Leon Russell fan. In many respects, he he kind of built his shtick on Leon's. He I mean, did. Graham Nash told me when he first encountered Elton as Reg, he was with the Hollies and he had gone back to see the Everly Brothers in a hotel. They were making an album here in, in London. Mm-hmm. And in that little room, in, in the hotel room, they were working out at arrangements. It was Don and Phil. Reg Elton on piano and Jimmy Page on guitar. <laughs> and they were sitting there working out Everly Brothers songs. That's amazing. In, unbelievable. Yeah. Fantastic. That so he was, I mean, he was up to his eyeballs in the scene before and, and working for Dick James. Yeah, so, absolutely. You know. And Long John Baldry's piano player. Exactly right. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was actually Long John Baldry who basically told him to come out. You know, Long John Baldry himself being gay. Yeah spotted Elton for what he was <laughs> and said Look, you just got to be who you are you know you can't you can't kind of you know and it took him a long time after that for him to actually well, come he out. wrestled with he it. wrestled with many years. he had that sort of yeah. sort of marriage um, Renata yes yeah. right I mean, that wasn't even that uh, long ago no um, I was in New York with him actually when he did come out in Rolling Stone mm-hmm. and it was a very big yeah, yeah. moment for him he mm-hmm. he was racked with indecision about it right up until publication sure and but very, very worried brave. about what very worried yeah. about what his mum would think. Exactly. I mean, right. you know, yeah. that probably more than anything else probably. didn't want to disappoint his mum. Right. I mean, it's it's so poignant, really. Yeah. 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 But is it still an extraordinary? I mean, I can't claim to be a huge Elton John fan. I, I think a lot of his songs are. are pretty bland I have to say and formulaic and I've just he's just never really done it for me mm-hmm. but I but I have to say that you know because you make such a good point you know his heart was in that American yeah. tumbleweed connection right. that's really right. all he, he wanted to be the famous story is that he played at the Troubadour and David Ackles was supporting him and he that's was right. outraged that David Ackles was supporting him <laughs> right. and uh, you know because he really revered Ackles he did um, yeah. and, but then sort of literally it's only a matter of what four or five years and this guy is selling out these vast stadia yeah. around America right. and wearing you know nine inch platform shoes and extraordinary ostrich I mean and he's still yet yeah, he's still this little dumpy yeah. guy really from uh, Pinner I, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's funny I, I like you I've never really had much interest in his music though I thought Rocket Man was a fantastic yeah. single but I've always kind of liked him 
there's just something about Elton. I, I, He's I'm, such a giving performer. Yeah. I mean, you know, he really, like so many people, yeah. he, he, not like so many people, actually, he really, on stage, mm-hmm. he really gives it everything. Yeah. I think he gives it everything uh, he, he has. Uh, also, the, you know, I mean, he's had his struggles, you know, his sexuality is already sad with drugs and right. Well, so and so with so tantrums and tears. And tantrums and tears. Yeah. But he seems to have a sense of humor towards himself, which a lot of people don't have. And yeah. that he sort of recognized the absurdity of what he'd what he's always done, yeah. his, his career has an, essentially an element of absurdity built into it that he knows. And he's always been yeah. a great fan and supporter yeah. of, of, of other and younger artists, yeah, which I is. really appreciate. We've got yeah. three pieces about him which sort of, in a sense, span his, not his entire career, but the first is 1971, Penny Valentine was a big champion right, yeah. in disc and music echo, so that's that's Elton just about to. Right. It's the rise of Reg, I think, is, is almost the title of the piece. 1992, I think it is, Philip Norman, who had just been researching Elton's, the biography of Elton, if it, right. and writes a long piece about finally going to his house and Elton trying, in a sense, to sort of give up the whole tantrums mm, and tiaras yes, thing and yeah. look after himself and not be such a diva and prima donna. And then... 2004, Ian Gittins in The Guardian writing about how Elton's sort of becoming cool again. Yeah. And mm-hmm. he did become, you mentioned Leon Russell. Yeah. To me, that was a significant moment that he did that album with exactly. Leon. Exactly. Yes. Right. Yeah, it sort of showed his heart, his music, right. musical taste in the right place. I, I mean, bet, I, he, he I with him as well. I, yeah. Exactly. I imagine that Elton was in the audience alongside myself and others at the Albert Hall when Leon Russell first played England 71. One of the great rock and roll shows I've ever seen in my yeah. life. Very actual, likely, if he actual. wasn't performing in America at that time, that's he true. would have been yeah. there. But yeah. I think that's absolutely right. So, will I rush out to see this film? I don't know whether I will. I'll probably watch it. So I, I have an aversion to mm. rock. Oh, you have picks. to put a gun to my head to get me into the yeah. theater. <laughs> they that. are just I'm sorry. nearly he, all awful. He has officially kind of announced his retirement, hasn't he, Elton? Has, oh, yeah, so. but he, this is his third retirement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, like, yeah. like Sinatra's various retirements. Exactly. Yeah. He, he did a retirement tour in New York and now he's coming back to New York in October to do <laughs> another one. <laughs> you can retire as many times as you Let's get back to Bob. Yes. Um, and, and just so... Um, for what it's worth, I picked three pieces. We don't have a lot of your stuff on RBP as yet, but we're trying to change that. Uh, mm. I, I, so I picked a Barry Manilow piece, oh, you earlier, which <laughs> I love. That was my first major cover well, story. Was it? So tell us about tell us how you became a writer. Well, you know, I, I left the music business, and I had been on the road for I'd been on the road for eight years. Mm-hmm. I had no home. I didn't know where I was. I've been living in hotel rooms for for eight years, and I needed to get away from the crowds and the mayhem and the music for a while, too. (laughs) And and what do you do? I mean, you lock yourself in the room and you become a writer. Yeah, that's a good way. I just, I needed a quiet life, and Mm. and I'd I'd always, as a kid growing up, my mother said I used to have this ream of empty paper. And I never wrote anything. I would just run my thumb over it at night. <laughs> and I would look at it and go, God, One day. to fill this up, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> Philip Roth. <laughs> uh, so I thought, you know what? I'm going to try to become a writer. And, and Bruce and I used to play baseball on the Crawdaddy team. We were 
ringers for them. Okay. Uh, the baseball team. It was a softball team that we played in the village. And uh, I thought, well, I'm going to prey on these guys, on my friendship with them, to give me a chance to write. And they did. They gave me a, a couple record reviews to write. Took me, you know, to do a hundred words on an album must have taken me two weeks. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was just I didn't know what I was Longer doing. Longer than, than going on the road with Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, exactly, yeah. really. And so I began to do short features for them, and it was a great staff. There were so many interesting writers mm. there. My editor was John Perellis, who has been, oh. you know, the rock critic for mm-hmm. the New York sure. Times for the last forty years. I didn't realize that he would have been an editor at that. Point. He was. He was. He, he was a kid. Young. He was. 20 years old. Yeah. He had just graduated from We'd college. We'd love to get him on board. Right? Oh, John, John's a wonderful guy. Wonder, really smart, and I'm trying to nominate him for the Pulitzer Prize because his rock journalism you yeah. Know, yeah. is extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, we obviously couldn't use his time, uh, his stuff. time stuff because he'd be a staff, I'd guess, but right. uh, we could certainly use the stuff he wrote for the various, well, Crawdaddy and other people. Yeah, oh, like absolutely. That. Yeah. And so John really taught me how to write, and, and Tim White was my editor, too. Yeah. Sure. Uh, Tim was, was my... Was Peter... Who was the, the editor at that Peter point? Noble Peter Noble Greg, was the editor. And Greg Mitchell. They Greg were both, Mitchell. Uh, they were co-editors. Peter was the editor because his dad underwrote the magazine. Yeah. You know, <laughs> And everybody kind of looked askance at Esconsia. him. As, you know, okay, we know why you're here. Your dad wrote, <laughs> oh, wrote the magazine. Mm. But he, Peter was a good writer. You know, mm. he was a good well, writer. Was Vernon Gibbs writing for the paper uh, for Crawdaddy at the time uh, you were I don't, there? I don't He's th- an th- African-American writer, one of ours, who's just one of my favorite writers. No, I don't re- did some stuff. He did, a, he did a column called Soul Man, in, mm. uh, I guess maybe before your... It might have been before, before your time. your time, yeah. 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 But, but the core group there was not only great... Greg and Peter mm. and John Perellis and Tim White mm. and Mitch Glazer, who Mitch went Glazer. on to not just write for Rolling Stone, but now is, has written many movies. Mm. And so it was, it was a really good team. Susan Shapiro's. Susan wrote a few things. Yeah. I, I, she had an editorial. Oh, she had an admin job. I think she's like in, involved in like head of a circulation or something. Uh-huh. Yeah. And they had yeah. great, great photographers. And, and it, yeah, it was it's good. Paper. And you know, we were we were always up against Rolling Stone. They yeah, had yeah, more yeah. money cool. and more name. And so the reason that I got in at at Crawdaddy was we gave Bruce exclusively to Crawdaddy. And we locked right. out Rolling Stone. Ha. And it wasn't until John Landau, you know, <laughs> saw the future in, in <laughs> Rolling Stone that Bruce kind of gravitated to yeah, elsewhere. Yeah. yeah, there were a number of uh, Bruce covers. But they gave me that sure. Barry Manilow piece. It's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, they said, go interview Barry Manilow and, with tongue in cheek. And he turned out to be, you know, kind of a lovely guy. No, he's a, a smart guy. Yeah, yeah, he had played piano for yeah. Bette Midler. That's right. And, and in the, the continent. He could do a whole interview just on that. Right. Uh, I love that piece. I mean, I, pr- I, I, wow, I, I haven't seen it, it since I wrote oh, it. Oh no, you it, know. It, 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 <laughs> it's on Rock's back pages. It, it, oh God, it, it, it's really good. I mean, you know, it, it's funny. You sort of. Don't mock. You do kind of mock him a bit, well, but we in a very, to. very sort know, of gentle sort of way. You know, yeah. I know it's it's it's, it's the descriptiveness really, is really good. Yeah. You're right there. It's very interesting. Uh, uh, Barry actually loved the piece. He he didn't he, see any mockery in it and thought it was great. It was one of the first cover stories ever done on him. And he, well, he he got very little rock press. Very stop. Well, right. You know? Very well. Yeah. So the second piece that I chose was your interview with. 
Paul McCartney about to be knighted. Oh, <laughs> and there's a yeah. pretty image of on the fridge in the mill house in Sussex. Yeah. There's a little piece of paper yeah, yeah. magnetised to the fridge. It's Buckingham it's, it's Palace. All, yeah, 12, 12 p.m. Tuesday, Buck Palace. <laughs> right, exactly. It's hilarious. You know, it, it, it was such an odd thing. I was supposed to go to that with him. Majesty's a pretty nice girl, but she doesn't have a lot to say. Majesty's a pretty nice girl, but she changes from day to day. I want to tell her that I love her a lot, but I gotta get a belly full of wine. Majesty's a pretty nice girl, someday I'm gonna make a mine, oh yeah, someday I'm gonna make a mine. And so the New York Times sent me over. Paul was very eager to have a piece done in the New York Times yeah, magazine. Yeah, right. And so they sent me over, and they kept me sitting there for two days, and then sent me home. I didn't see him. Then they sent me back. <laughs> and Paul was too busy. And they sent me home. And I said, I'm not going back. So Paul called me himself and said, come over. And so we did the interview. And I walked out of there and I said, you know, he wanted to charm me. You know, mm-hmm. that's what Paul does. Yeah, yeah. So we, we did this interview. I got nothing out of him. And he said, come down in the studio. I know you're a player. And we go down to the studio and... You know, he shows me the bass from Elvis Presley and mm-hmm. all the instruments and the harpsichord from In it's My got a Life. He's got it. It's all legendary there. And he sits down and he plays with me and he, he, he gets me to play a little with him. And I think, Paul wow. McCartney's nodding me into a song. And I thought, you know, screw this. I'm being seduced. This is ridiculous. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I, I said to him, you know, Paul, I mean, you know, you're handling me. And he, and he looked at me and he said, I, I, gave you some, I gave you some stuff. And I said, you don't give the New York Times stuff. This is an interview. And he said, well, you got a good interview. And I went back and I, I, my editor was, I said to him, you know, I got nothing. This was supposed to be a cover story. Mm. And I, I said, read, read my notes. And they looked at it and they said, it's all soft stuff. I mean, mm. he, was thro- he was lobbing softballs at you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I, I called McCartney's people and I said, we're going to kill this piece. And so I got you a call for a fourth visit. I got a no. I got a call from Paul, and he was he was befuddled. He had no idea that I couldn't be handled. Mm-hmm. And so we talked, and he gave me great stuff. Mm-hmm. Such a good interview that I knew that I could launch a book from that, and and I did. And mm-hmm. that's, that's where the book. So the Beatles book kind of stemmed from that interview. From that right. interview, you bet it did. Got it. Um, got it. It's interesting because there's an element of this, his extraordinary prickliness. This is a man who should feel utterly confident in his place in Absolutely. the world. Absolutely. And yet, he's still resentful about the, the legacy of John Lennon. Oh, it came out in my piece completely. Yeah, absolutely. There's all that stuff about the, the, the naming the album Flaming Pie. Right. And, 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 and Yoko being pissed off. Well, he's y- probably y- going to be pissed off y- about y- it. Y- yes, yeah. and... And more recently, when he tried to change the order of their names on the songs from Lennon-McCartney to McCartney-Lennon. Why is he he so thin-skinned about this? Because I think Paul always felt that he was the star of the Beatles. He was the player. I mean, let's face it, he was the best musician in the band. No no doubt doubt about that. And yet all the real rock people gravitated to John, and that always irked him completely. Mm. You know, Paul was more of a pop writer, and he never saw himself that way. He saw himself as the force behind the Beatles. Mm -hmm. So every time he hears that 
Oh, John was the edgy one. John was the, the guy who uh, had the spirit of, of yeah. rock and roll. Yeah. It drove him crazy. So, uh, you know, he brought it up right away. I mean, oh, when I, I, I asked him where he was, I remember this. Where are you when you think about John? What comes over you? Mm-hmm. And, you know, he went into this whole teary thing about it. But I could tell it was, you know, it was, <laughs> it was an act. It was, yeah. it, it was kind of an act. But in that interview, he said to me, look, I got to tell you, everything about the Beatles is only half true. He said, we gave that story to Hunter Davies in, I guess it was 64, 63, 64. And he said, we made up 50% of it because, you know, we didn't want our wives and our girlfriends and our family to to hear the stuff. And I said, look, he was in his 60s at the time, his late 60s. I said, we're not going to be here that much longer, Paul. You want that to be your legacy, to be the, mm. the half-truth? And I, I think he thought about it, and he opened up everybody to talk to me for that right. book. Yeah. The amazing thing was people would say to me, look, we've been told for 35 years, you talk about the Beatles, you're out of the circle. His relatives, his aunts and mm-hmm. uncles and cousins, they would call me and say, I don't know what to do here. We, we've been told we can talk to you. Um, and, and so I, I, felt, I felt like after 40 years, I was going to get the real story of the Beatles. Now, I know you don't know this. It was a 955-page book. But when the manuscript came in, and I'm glad you're both sitting down, the manuscript was 2,800 pages. Bloody hell. And I put it on my editor's desk, and he looked at and it. He, he didn't even collapsed. read it. He didn't yeah. even read it. No, he didn't even read it. He, he, looked, at the, he looked at it, and he said, um, Take it away. this is unpublishable. Mm. It's unpublishable. Um, so we gave it to a young editor who was going to be on, on holiday for a while and said, eh, well, at least look at it. And the guy thought it was extraordinary, and, but he called me uh, about two months later and he said, I've made a cut. And I said, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> he said, I've cut 1,700 pages from it. <laughs> and I gulped. I read the manuscript that he sent back, and I said, what did you cut? Well, I mean, it was, yeah. it was right. gorgeous. It was beautiful. Okay. And he said, now I'm going to make you cry. We're going to cut another 400 pages <sighs> out of it. And they did, and it did make me cry. Yeah. But we did not, I didn't rewrite a single word mm-hmm. of that manuscript. And uh, I regret, you know, the other 2,000 pages that went by because there was great stuff about the Beatles that we'll never know about. Maybe they should produce the Kindle edition with the, yeah, yeah, the, all, yeah. all those pages well, back why in. Not? Why yeah. not? But yeah. can we briefly talk about why you are back in London at the moment? Or oh, was your other key? Yeah. Keep uh, that close to your chest. No, no, I am uh, plagiarizing your book. <laughs> I'm here to. I'm here to plagiarize. admits it. I'm here to plagiarize your Led Zeppelin book. Really? <laughs> plagiarizing why? It, it, it can be a, a nicer or you smarter guy to ta- do it. Get your tanks off his lawn. No, I, I just felt that there, there, like the Beatles, there had been, you know, there had been 800 books on the Beatles when I. Set yeah. out to write it. Uh, my editor called and said, uh, "Look, we want you to." I was w- working on a different book at the time. I was right in the middle of it, and he said, "We want you to do." Uh, I want to make another deal with you, and I said, uh, uh, "What are you kidding?" And he said, "No, I want you to be Led Zeppelin's biographer." And I went, "Oh, okay. We got a problem. Here. <laughs> uh, here's the problem. The problem is, and I'm going to admit this on the air. 
I didn't own a single Led Zeppelin album. I didn't know any of their songs except Whole Lot of Love and Stairway <laughs> to Heaven. Uh, I was not a Led Zeppelin fan. I was in the John Mendelssohn camp at the time. <laughs> you know what that means. He was means. sitting in that very seat. Yeah, <laughs> Three or four months ago. I bring regards from him. I've <laughs> yeah. seen him. I went, I'm not the right person to do this. And he said, no, no. It's my favorite band. You're the right person. I love your Beatles book. We want you to do the same kind of story from soup to nuts. Use everything that's out there now, but go back and talk to everybody and do it the Bob Spitz way. And I, I turned him down, and then he mentioned a sum of money, and I went, I'm your man. <laughs> I actually really like Let's <laughs> right. I'm your guy. <laughs> uh, and I'm getting a cut of that, right? We agree. You're going to get the same cut that we gave Bruce. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, well, I do really look forward to that. And I know you've already done a bunch uh, of interviews on this trip, and you've probably done a, a hundred already. I've for been this. on it for about a year. Okay, so you've already done 200. Y- yeah, and then people were. Uh, uh, I've got a lot of good stuff. Yeah, Great. A lot Fantastic. Of good stuff. Fant- and they just announced yesterday an official documentary about literally the first two years in the life of Led Zeppelin. Uh-huh. Um, it's in some respects the most interesting two years. Yes, I, I agree Led's, with you. Led's, Led's in some respects, yeah. um, but well, you know, very good luck and yeah, in, the, in the remainder of your of your research. Please stick around as we so they say on the radio. Stick around. Okay. <laughs> uh, we're, we're, I'm going to hand over to Mo. He's going to tell us a bit about this week's audio interview. It is Stevie Wonder's birthday on Monday. Um, so we decided that we would add this second Stevie audio. We have one already that yes. I did in 2005. Ooh, this I'm is... going to put my sunglasses on. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like rocking back and forth. I'm yeah. doing it now. Tell us about yeah. this one. Uh, I mean, I mean it's, a, it's a strange one because, <laughs> because um, I've been distracted by our guest. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, it's, uh, yeah, 95, Dave, Dave Nathan interview. On the back of his then-current album Conversation Piece, which we actually listened to in the office today. I and, it, a, and it's better than we remembered. Of all, all new recent for, Stevie albums, and by recent, um, it's a relative term, but I think it's one of the better uh, ones. Uh, but he's kind of curiously downbeat and humorless in this interview. He mm. uh, I think David asks some very good questions, mm. and he tends to answer them in sort of glib generalizations. We'll play a clip from it right now, which is... In the light of how he became a writer of sort of songs about things other than love, yeah. broader political issues, yeah. is how what's going on, Marvin Gaye's What's Going On, yeah. was um, a significant influence in him. And it's, so it's his little tribute to what's Marvin. going on. Yeah. Marvin Gaye, with his uh, Return album, was a. Uh, I mean, it is still one of the most incredible albums uh, in the history of our music. And so, uh, as to the statement of it, it was an album that I loved and um, that it encouraged me more than influenced me and encouraged me because it said to me, there's another person who is willing to, you know, to not sacrifice his art, you know, just because it may not be a popular topic of, of today or of the day, but it is something that should be said.
I think that's pretty interesting stuff. He talks about, as I said, the new album conversation piece. He talks about songwriting. We'll hear a clip at the end where he talks about why, in terms of what sort of what drove the content of his mid seventies albums, um, things like the Vietnam War and, and inner city unrest and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. Um, uh, and he talks about his love of old TV variety shows in the sense that you could see someone playing a cello and Elvis Presley on the same show in right. 1956 or whatever. And he says, and I think what he's talking about is the segregation of American media in, yeah. in, in, in subsections. So that's my end of the Stevie thing. Yeah. Bob, tell us about yours. Uh, <laughs> well, no, I'll tell you, the, the most interesting thing is that when we started out, when Bruce started out, we opened for Stevie Wonder. Wow. Yeah. We have the same agent, the William Morris Agency, a guy named Sam McKeith. He booked us on Stevie Wonder tours. And so... What year would that have been? 71. Right. 1971. I think this is significant, because we're, we're talking about the period where Bill Graham and Fillmore's had been putting on mixed bills. You'd get Miles Davis with The Grateful Dead, for example. Right. So it was a brief window in rock and roll when you could combine the segregation broke down broke down exactly right and then and then we went out with Eddie Starr Edwin Starr yeah. and it's why Bruce continues to do war in his <laughs> shows these days yeah. and then we opened for Chicago and that was that killed it for Bruce he decided he would never not just open for somebody mm-hmm. again he would never have an opening act because while we performed the kids waiting for Chicago just walked around the arena yeah. and, and bounced balls with their oh, friends. It's a and nobody listened to it. It, w- it was so hard yeah. to do that. So that was the end of opening acts for yeah, Bruce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, oh, good. But good. we were talking a little bit earlier about Elton John. Yeah. And, and, and as I said at the very beginning, it, it's somewhat 70s themed today just because of the acts we're talking about. I mean, I think most of us would agree that Stevie is. One of the giants, Giants, particularly of that decade. Absolutely. Particularly of that decade. And to me, Mark, it was really interesting hearing him talk about, actually, you know, not just like music of my Mm. mind, but talking about where I'm coming from. That's the breakthrough album. Yep. Yeah, uh, and inner visions. Well, uh, inner, inner visions a little just, bit later. Yeah, but that run of albums from where I'm coming from, I think, through to songs in the key of life, it is almost unparalleled. Yeah. I think yeah, in absolutely. terms of its courage, its adventurousness, yeah. its musicality. It's music, yeah, yeah. Music, yeah. Music, yeah. I mean, it's at a great time for black music. I yes. mean, I, I would say yeah. that, that I mean a lot of white people tend to look back fondly at the sixties and stacks and some Motown. But for me, I think that period in the 70s, because Al Green was making great al- albums yeah. at the time. Not, exactly. just, not just singles. Well, it was about albums. albums. These, these guys who'd been traditionalists, particularly Motown artists, who'd been, who'd been positioned as singles yes. stars, right. suddenly like, I want to make it up. Yeah. I want to be taken seriously. Like Marvin Gaye. Right. And, 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 and hence what's going on is, is such an important And, and yeah. St- Stevie Wonder statement. also, he had a such broad musical outlook. He listened to a lot of white music, Stevie he Wonder. Did. And for example, he picked up the use of the clavinet from the band. I mean, he invented the funk clavinet after listening to a band up, 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 on, Cripple up on Cripple Creek. Creek. Right. He talks about Blurn in the Wind in yeah, the audio. Yeah, that, that sort of covering Blurn yeah, in the Wind was yeah, the beginning absolutely. of his sort of social political yeah. consciousness as a writer. And, you know, and around the same time, the Isley Brothers, the younger Isleys had joined the Isley Brothers mm. and they were listening to all these West Coast singer-songwriters and all that. And out of that came a whole slew of great albums leading up to 3 Plus yeah, 3, right. Summer Breeze and things like that, you know, white songwriters sure, material. Yeah. Great and period. Have, and you have to also understand where Stevie came from. Stevie was really set up at Motown yeah. to be like 
the way they had envisioned Michael Jackson. At yes. the yeah, precisely. You know, little Stevie yeah. Wonder. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah. He was almost like a cartoon character. Absolutely. And he was having none of that. Mm-hmm. None mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. he had so much talent, yeah. it just... It overcame anything that yeah. Barry Gordy wanted yeah. him to be. In, in conjunction with Tonto's expanding headband, mm. he come, mm. became one of the pioneers of synthesizers mm. and rock Absolutely and roll. Right. You know, all kinds of stuff. Well, anyway. I was going to say, yeah. you know, just just on the, just the innovativeness of what he did with synths was was extraordinary. You bet. The time I interviewed him was was I had this experience where he was working on the album A Time to Love. It's twenty oh five, so I went to his studio in Koreatown, Koreatown, yeah. and then. And we were up all night. He was working all night, as he always does. Complete night bird. I was, I was jet lagged. I was drop. I was dying. I could not keep my eyes. <laughs> well, you know, open. there was no day and or night for Stevie. No, precisely, yeah. precisely. So, but there was day and night for me. Yeah, and right. boy, was I feeling it. I ended up lying on the studio floor, <laughs> sleeping. Anyway, at one point, he he allowed me to see. There was this little corridor. Yeah. With all these. Legendary synthesizers, all yeah. the famous wow. machines yep. that he had used for these albums, Fabulous. and and with, with it Bob was blew from those guys. Yeah. my mind. I mean, yeah. You're I telling me that those sounds were made on these machines? It just was extraordinary. Mm. Eventually, at like six in the morning. I get the nod, Stevie's ready to talk. I mean, I'm just dead at this point. Yeah. And we're sitting there in the studio. He's falling asleep. I'm falling asleep. I mean, you could, <laughs> you, you could hear it on the tape. The, yeah. Stevie would just suddenly sort of go, <laughs> and then it would be me going, <laughs> anyway, we, we got there. I mean, it was, I was, I it was, was a big thrill. Yeah. I was at a birthday party for him when he turned 30 years old, and he was despondent because... Becoming 30, he said, he realized that he only had so many albums left to make in what would be his short life. And so he parceled them out in his head. He He thought, well, I've got five albums left. Yeah. Uh, whew, what a dark moment. Yeah. yeah. Completely. I, I mean, the other thing we forget about is that he was a pioneer of what Prince did, which was doing yeah, everything yourself. Yep. I mean, superstition. Stevie plays every instrument. His yeah. drumming. His drumming I mean, is just fantastic. Like on and, Too High, and the pre- first track on Inner Visions, yeah. the drumming on that. And, yeah, and, and, Dirty oh Mind, and Dirty Minds, Prince does exactly the same yeah. thing. You um, know. Anyway, so I think I think that's Stevie that's, dealt with. That's Stevie. Um, and I, I, stick around for some more. Because okay. <laughs> uh, we're now going to hear about some of the highlights. I just want to say happy birthday to Stevie. We can, yeah. can we all come happy with Happy birthday. Happy birthday. <laughs> So over to you, Mr. Pringle. Yeah, well, um, new stuff in the library. I'll skip the first thing I was going to talk about. Go straight to, and this is in your honour, Barney, Crispian St. Peter's, who's a micro star of the most oh, micro yeah. Why star. is that in my honour? Well, <laughs> well, it's because this marvellous Richard Green. Is your beast, nickname for me Crispian? Hold on, hold on. Just crispy. Uh, um, R- R- Richard, Richard Green was sent to interview him in Spain because he was doing various TV shows. They're returning from Spain at the same time as the Chelsea football team, who had just been beaten 5 0 in the Intercity Fairs Cup. Third replay. The first game was tooled at the New Camp, the second game was tooled at the Bridge. 
Then they went back to the new camp for the third replay. This is the semi finals. <laughs> they lost 5 0. This is a no different idea what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. We are both, <laughs> as it happens, fans of Chelsea, Chelsea FC. Yeah. So, so, so playing tonight. Okay. So Richard point. Green writes strange bleating noises from the rear of a comet. That in itself is a little thing. The comet plane, which of course they ended up having to scrap because they were falling out of the sky <laughs> with metal fatigue in the wings. Anyway, vague attempts at chat up stewardesses and almost non stop barrage of olives and pieces of cheese from the great welcome home Crispian St Peter's his manager and I received from the Chelsea football team at the end of our three day trip to Barcelona don't get the idea that the team had come all the way to greet us it was just that they were on the same return flight from Spain the only difference is that they had been beaten 5-0 in the match and Crispian had scored undoubted success on Spanish TV Kiss us on, Crispian. Get your hair cut. Who sings on your records? And similar compliments are voiced in our direction <laughs> oh, during the so two-hour flight. Fun. Crispian P- St. Peter's, I mean, he's, 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 he's nothing. He's no... It's a brilliant name for a 60s yeah. and, and he writes in this, he talks in this about how much he's really gone off Picasso, how Picasso was really good once and isn't any good anymore. <laughs> the last good thing he did was a woman, a prostitute. I wish to God I could paint the way he did first of all. And he says things like, I think books are a load of rubbish apart from a few. Black Beauty was a good one. They're just stories and you read them when you're none the wiser. I mean, he's just a twerp of the first he's order. So, so that's great. <laughs> Second piece from the Warren Forest Sun, 1968. Warren Forest Sun, as I believe I've explained in the past, was John Sinclair's underground paper in Ann Arbor uh-huh. in, 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 in sure. 67, 68. And this is his White Panther statement. For those of you who don't know, the White Panther Party weren't in opposition to the Black Panther. They were actually the As support, it would be today. As it would be today. Right. They were actually the support party to the Black Panthers and other things. And they had their slogans like, dope, rock and roll and fucking in the streets and so on and yeah. so forth. Oh, expletive. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's the second one, actually. Oh, uh, okay. he, 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 said, he said shitter. I yeah, did. So, yeah. oh, that's great. You have to get at least two. Uh, and there's, there's just you know, a few great quotes here. It's, our culture, our art, the music, newspapers, books, posters, our clothing, our homes, the way we walk and talk, the way our hair grows, the way we smoke dope and fuck and eat and sleep. It's all one message, and the message is freedom. <laughs> By the way, th- this is the White Panther statement. And of course, the MC5 with a house yes, band. Uh, yeah. Well, well quite. White, white and he Panthers. says, we are free. We're a bunch of arrogant motherfuckers, and we don't give a damn for any cop or any phony ass authority control addict creep who wants to put us down. I mean, this is just snap. Kick of, out the Germans, motherfuckers. Well, yeah, our, our exactly. programme of rock and roll dope and fucking in the streets is a programme of total freedom for everyone, and we are totally committed to carrying out our programme. It's great. I mean, it's basically sort of a political manifesto, but... Um, you laugh now at the naivety. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but I thought it was great. Next piece, which is riveting, which is Mike Gormley in Detroit Free Press, October 69. And he's been given... I actually messaged him yesterday, and he said he had little memory of this, but he believes that Capital sent him a pre-release of an album by the, from the Beatles called Get Back, which almost six months later was eventually released as Let It Be. Mm. Right. And this is the version before Phil Spector got his hands on it. So Capital was basically sending out sort of unmixed tapes to people. Yeah, right. So you, you Bob would probably well, know. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, you, you, I'm very, very glad you're you're yes. here with us to, t- to talk about this. He says the Beatles' next album, Get Back, actually recorded before their recent album, Abbey Road, probably won't set the scene on fire. It's better than Abbey Road, which is probably the worst they've ever done. Oh, please. I, I know, I know. But, <laughs> but, get, but Get Back will worry people. There's nothing new on it. You've heard it all before. 
And in that respect, he's actually he's, he's, he's pretty much right. He is right, yeah. He said, I listened to the album on unmixed tape. At times the music was in the distant background, and other times it's difficult to understand the words. And then he goes through the whole album track by track, which isn't the same album as Let It Be. There are songs no, on the tape. No, it was tape. different, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so just as a sort of historical item, mm. this is, I'm really pleased to find this and, uh, and put it Terrific. in. Yeah. Swiftly on, there's, very, I won't, there's nothing from it to report, but there's a very... Our earliest references in the library to Teardrop Explodes and Echo and the Bunnerman Zoo mm. Records in, in Liverpool. And it's about mostly Teardrop Explodes and Zoo Records, which of course is, what's his name? Bill Drummond. Bill Drummond. Bill Drummond and, uh, uh, and his henchmen. Yes, uh, 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 and Bill Drummond who obviously went on to the KLF and all those yeah. kinds of things. So, so this is a kind of... Zoo was sort of intended to be almost like, they were that kind of the sort of psychedelic Liverpool equivalent yeah. of like factory records yeah. in Manchester. It didn't really happen, but it did produce, mm. you know, some, yeah. some fairly big acts. Uh, next thing in 1983, Baltimore Sun, Jeff Jeffrey Himes' interview with Laurie Anderson. I was talking to our producer Jasper about this in, in, in the office. That's say, him in the background. Um, is that we had this extraordinary thing in the early 80s when the pop charts were so wide open that something like Oh Superman could come to get to number two in the British pop yeah. charts. Mm. Now, this is inconceivable today. It was inconceivable even 20, 20 years ago. But back then you could have that alongside Grace Jones, alongside yes. you know, early Human League and so on and so tight forth. Tight fit. Really, <laughs> and, tight, <laughs> tight, and tight fit indeed. So you just have this extraordinary moment in time when, when, when really interesting yeah. stuff... And boy do I long for that. Yeah. Never yeah. happened again. No. Extraordinary record. Yeah. Still, still a really spooky and yeah. beautiful... Well, we, we played in the office. Of Jasper, you hadn't heard it before. He's no. shaking his head. Did you like it, Jasper? He's now nodding his head. He's allowed to nod. When he's, out, when he's in the producer's <laughs> chair, he's allowed to nod. He's allowed to nod. And you listen to it now, and you think, A, this is rather fabulous, and B, it's magnificent that yeah. enough people would buy it to put it up in the top of the charts at a time when getting to the top of the charts meant hundreds of thousands of records. Sold, right. You know, so It only leaves the question begged, how did she manage to live contentedly with Lou Reed for well, at least 15 she years. Probably got, she probably got to see the nice side of him, assuming there is one. He saved it all for her. I oh, guess he did. Because she was the... Lo- <laughs> I mean, I interviewed her once. The, She's the nicest person. Yeah, she, my God. Yeah. She is. Lou... There aren't many journalists who, who could oh, say, Lou, yeah. Lou, great guy! People would cross the street if they saw a Lou coming. <laughs> yeah. Really. The scariest, oh. the scariest musician I've ever met. Oh, Superman. Oh, John. 1985, Bobby Womack interviewed by Hugh Fielder and Sounds. Barney and I are both massive Bobby Womack fans. Always we worship, we, we, worship we, we, we the do. Womack. And you know, he, he's, he does good interview. I mean, I don't have read a boring interview with him. He's a guy who loves, Great to, talker. loves to talk. Totally off the... Off, I mean, unguarded, yeah. candid, doesn't yeah. care yeah. what he says. Really? Is he, he still he, around? No, he, he no, died last year. He's gone. Year. He's gone. Uh, yeah. Longer ago. Was it? Anyway. Yeah, longer ago, um, then he's gone. He's just on an upsurge on the back of the Poet and the Poet 2 albums, yeah. uh, having uh, been in the doldrums for a long time. Selling out Hammersmith Odeon yeah. three nights here. Uh, uh, really, really. Um, and, yeah. he sa- and he says, about that time before those records came out, he says... You know, I lost the will to play guitar until recently. I thought, who fucking cares? Right. But then he's he's very interesting talking about the nature of kind of growing old as music. He says, James Brown may be soul brother number one, but on stage he's an old man gasping for breath. Well, you know. Yeah, Bobby told it like it was. Yeah, and he says, I don't don't want to be overrated. I just want to be respected as one of the main guys, not just by my peers, by the people. Mm. So that's great. 
1987. I love this. It's Tony Shum, who's another new, a relatively mm. new addition to our writer's stable. Mm-hmm. Um, interviews with marvellous Jim Dickinson, who, again, we're both huge fans of, involved in so much great Memphis music, yep. first going right back and to And produced it. the replacements, of course. Uh, but most famously, the big, the big star, yeah. third This album. is very much on the back of of the replacements he, he, he'd suddenly been picked up by American indie bands you mm-hmm. know in, in the late 80s yeah. and they'd be going down there to Memphis to record yeah. with him to get some of that sort of southern grit into their sort yeah. of thing uh, he, and he's just great he, again great interview Gave great quiet um, I'm, I'm a displaced hillbilly not a redneck rednecks are crazy um, and then he talks about I think it was watching, seeing Elvis on television. Of course, it helped my father yank me away. No, he'd see, found a bunch of blues musicians playing the street around the corner just after the family had moved to Memphis. Uh-huh. And his father kind of dragged him away. And he says, of course, it helped my father yank me away in disgust. If your parents don't hate it, it ain't rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> um, He's right. Just great things. Yeah. Good, good production borders on the criminal. I mean, I love, I just yes. love that. Oh, this last one's great. My idea of great sounding records is Harlem Wolf's early stuff with Sam Phillips. Sounds like... Like it's boiling up from the bottom of hell. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, he was such a poet. Yeah, yeah. Dick, well, of course, made his made made his own records. Um, there's that extraordinary record he made as James Luther Dickinson yes. called Beale Street Saturday Night I, with a bunch of sort of veteran Memphis bluesmen. It's, and he, it's and a he, wonderful And he played piece. on a couple of tracks on Sticky Fingers. He worked with Ennis' Bry Cooder. He's one of those Zellig figures. Zellig, totally yeah. Zellig just Zellig. pops up yeah. here, there and everywhere. But yes, he's playing yeah. on Wild Horses. Yeah. And the two things that they did at Muscle Shoals. Yeah. Yeah. So you can see, see him in the film sat next to Keith with his sort of glasses. You know. yeah. Last piece is just is Simon Price's review of Prince has come from 19- Melody Maker Subtly Well, well, well indi- in, indeed two women I know have wildly opposing views on Prince one confesses that she and her friends regularly fantasise about him on the grounds that no sexual request you made would shock him he'd do anything the other just squeals, "Ugh!" But he licks things. <laughs> They're both thoroughly well, vindicated the by the same state. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> They're both thoroughly vindicated by cum. Well, what do you think about it? What do you think of songs like "Pheromone," "Let It Go," and "Orgasm" might be groping towards? This is by some kilometres the dirtiest record Prince has ever made, and yes, I'm quite aware that that has formidable competition. It's a cunnilingual concept album. <laughs> <laughs> I actually reviewed this album for Mojo. And you didn't call it uh, a cunnilingual concept? <laughs> no, I, I, I gave it a really bad review. Yeah, I thought yeah. it was really... It was a record about sex that was utterly unsexy. Yeah. And that's what I felt about Prince by yeah. that stage, ha- having been a fan from day one and thought he made some of the very sexiest records Ever made. Yep. This wasn't sexy, and it was, it contrived. was yeah, kind and of cartoon sex. Sort yeah. Of, yeah, it was already Prince, you know, in autopilot mode, and mm. I think that that goes for most. I'm sorry if people are offended by this. Most of the records he made after Love Sexy, frankly, are are Prince on autopilot. I think after he broke up the revolution, I yeah. think breaking up the revolution was a disastrous move for him. I think having women working with him having was very band. good for him. Collaborating, right. yeah. It's always the same, you know. I mean, he went into this sort of Prince bubble and there was really no one to challenge him or go, you know, you know what, I think he may have done this before. Well, when they tried, he wrote slave on his cheek and, you know, I mean, which is effectively what happened 
because Warners did try that. I mean, for one of the problems he had with Warners, they wouldn't release his Endless Funk Jam records. No, no, they weren't. You know, thank God. Because they, I mean, they, funny enough, Stevie in the audio yeah. interview mentions he alludes without naming mm-hmm. Prince because he's talking about his relationship with Motown, isn't he? And he t- and the, the whole Prince Warners dispute yeah. is going on at that very time. When and they, he alludes when they, to it when they talk about all those vaults in his house that has. All of those tapes. Ghastly, the rubbish. Do, yeah, I mean, they ought to just bury those. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I like this recent release of him just playing piano. Yes. Oh, God, you that know, was fabulous. You know, well, Kirk, just some fabulous. of it was fabulous. So, yeah. you know, but, but, but I've always liked him doing that. I mean, going what was right it back. The, the, the 17 days, the, 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 yes. the piano in Mary Don't Get Weak, the gospel. That's what you want. It's here. terrific. Yeah. But uh, you're absolutely right, Bob, is that those tape vaults be full of endless aimless funk jams and really not much else if you had to wade your way through all those you'd hate Prince what could be interesting is the earlier stuff there may be some songs that no one's heard which may be of interest well that would be wonderful that would be those would be unearthing gems but then again I think he's already done that I mean he used to use those things on B-sides a lot so the hits and the B-sides I think we've heard all we're going to hear from Prince yeah Yeah. probably right if there are outtakes from Dirty Mind that are as good as anything on that I'd pay to hear them for sure but I doubt it yeah Yeah. that's my lot terrific oh well listen it's been such fun Uh, it's really been a, a treat speaking with you my Bob. pleasure yeah it's you know thank great. you so much for coming in I, I'm, I'm sure you have to rush off and interview Jason tea Bonham. with Jimmy Page <laughs> no I'm going, to, I'm going to interview who's ever in your book <laughs> well, you mentioned Benji Lefebvre earlier, yeah. and it took me ages to get Benji Benji had been like part of Zeppelin's crew yeah. and then was part of Robert's he was Robert's, Robert's right, right hand, hand man, man. Right, and, yeah. and I and everyone said you have to talk to Benji and it was so hard to nail him down when um, I finally did it was one of the best interviews for, for, for my I'm looking forward book. to it. So I really hope you get there. He's a Chelsea fan, too. Is he? If I think he lives in the shadow of Do you think he was on the plane that day with Crispin St. Peter's? <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. Well, so, great, really great, really, thank you so yeah, much for coming You guys on. are a hoot. I love doing that. Um, and, well, you yeah. know, we, we, we try and kind of keep well, it listen, vaguely li- Listen to it before you pass that. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, well. they're very different experiences, yeah, Bob. Yeah. You'll have masked you mask mask my voice. Yeah, what did they do? It sounded pretty good. You redacted me. Redacted spits. But, you know, listen, thank you again. Yeah, it's, it's been yeah. an absolute joy. We are going to bow out, Mark, with, with another yeah, Stevie. Clip. Stevie talking about the things which are going on around him, which caused him to write socially consciously. Bye. Goodbye. <laughs> Yeah, actually, um, I have to say mm-hmm. that probably the you know the Vietnam thing uh-huh. was something that uh, you know I was interested in. Mm-hmm. Uh, the racial situation that still existed, um, mm-hmm. the violence that happened within the inner cities. You know, just. The um, the fact of the uh, people, the the, the the psychological state mm-hmm. of people, the emotional state. Uh, was Stevie Wonder in conversation with David Nathan in 1995, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast.
Many thanks to special guest Bob Spitz. To find out more about his books, please visit bobspitz.com. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and the producer was Jasper Murison Bowie. As ever, you can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. Yeah.